I'd like to say before we get started that it is a blessing for my family and I to be invited here, and we count it as that blessing. We are, we are honored and thankful, and we visited here a few different times um, during some of your meetings. To be honest, though, I'm not sure if I've ever been here on a Sunday morning, so um, there are some that I have, have not seen and not met, and I hope that as we spend time together today that we will have the opportunity to do so. Um, for those of you who I haven't met, my name is Jeffrey Wells. I attend the Concord Church of Christ up in Gainesville, and um, Trevor reached out this past week and asked if, if I would be available to come and speak here, and just very happy that we, that we can be together this morning. There we go. I'll get this rolling, Yancey. New system, just experimenting a little bit. Um, this morning, what we're going to be talking about, as you can see on the screen, is the conversion of Saul. And um, Paul, Saul, whatever you want to call him, um, just for the sake of clarity, recognizing that the Apostle Paul that wrote the majority of our New Testament was previously known as Saul of Tarsus or Saul the Persecutor. That's who we're really going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at some of his experience as a Jewish believer and um, recognizing some of the reasons that he did what he did in his early life. And I think getting in the frame of that mind starts to help us understand just how powerful his conversion story really is because what we see is exactly what I said previously is that he wrote the majority of our New Testament and you see him as being a very powerful tool for God in the furtherance of the gospel and the expansion of his kingdom throughout the different areas. And so a very unique story, very interesting story, and one that I believe that throughout that narrative, a lot of lessons that we can learn. So let's begin by first talking about just the history of who Saul was. You know, Saul had a very strong and prevalent Jewish background. And, and that's something that's important for us to understand, I believe, is whenever you start to break down some of his belief system, you start to understand why he did some of the things that he did. And, and one thing in particular that I think is important to point out about the Jewish belief system at that particular time is that they did not approve of Jesus. In fact, many people of the Jewish religion hated Je Jesus. They saw him as a false teacher. They saw him as someone that was a threat against the Jewish religion, a heretic of the Jewish religion, and so they despised him. And I think John chapter 19 actually gives us a very good understanding and a very good synopsis of what many Jews believed about Jesus at the time. It says, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And in the, rising, and the writing said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. I believe that this summarizes their belief system here. Jesus was not the Christ. Jesus was not the Messiah. The Jewish people were looking for that. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. They knew to be looking for this great conqueror, this great Messiah, this great Christ. But in their thought process, Jesus was not that Christ. Jesus was not that Messiah. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross and there's a title placed above him, say, he said he was the king of the Jews. 
Now, another very important aspect of the Jewish religion at the time is that they saw themselves as better than a lot of other people. They had a major superiority complex, and it comes from different passages like Genesis chapter 12 or Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God, all the way back as the Jewish religion or the Israelite promise is being made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation, and I will bless thee, I will make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. That was a key focal point for the Jewish people. They held on to those promises. And they saw that promise that they were going to be a great nation. And then later on in their law in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says that thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. And the Jews took those types of phrases to heart. They recognized themselves and they saw themselves as God's chosen people and a group of people that were better than everyone else. And any other religion, any other sect that disrupted that, that challenged that, they hated. And you see that whenever Christ comes and he preaches and people begin following Christ and they, you pair that with their belief that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, and now all of a sudden you've got a group of people that are developing this hatred for Christians. <coughs> this is what Saul believed. But then you start to pair who Saul was and his zeal for the Jewish religion with some of those belief systems... And what you get is what he did. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul lays out his credentials, if you will, as, as a Jewish person. He says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. And as he lays out these credentials, he points to, to some very key characteristics of his Israelite lineage. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. You want to know why that's important? Is because that's what all Jewish boys were supposed to happen. They were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, that didn't always happen. There were extenuating circumstances where it didn't necessarily happen. But by citing the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day, says that from a very early age, my parents took the step to make sure that I did what was right to the letter. I was circumcised the eighth day. My parents devoted me the way that I should be. He talks about the fact that he was a, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is significant also whenever you think about the historical narrative throughout the Old Testament. Whenever you have Saul being the first king of Israel. Not Saul of Tar Tarsus, Saul the king. The kingdom was united. Then you've got David, who is the king of Israel. The kingdom was united. And then you've got Solomon, David's son. The kingdom was united. But then after Solomon died in the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the kingdom split. Ten tribes followed one, two tribes followed the other. There were two tribes that were faithful to the lineage that God had put over the people and anointed them as their king. The tribe of Benjamin was one of them. And so being of the tribe of Benjamin wasn't just a, oh, that's a cool story. 
he would be able to boast that he was of one of the two tribes that remained faithful to God throughout all of that division. Very important. Then he also points to the fact that as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were known for their very strict observance of the law. In fact, they were very much responsible for the development of the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is another supporting document to the law of Israel, where essentially they didn't want to get anywhere close to violating the law of God. And so they developed this Mishnah so that they wouldn't get close to it. It was an extra set of traditions, an extra set of boundaries. You know, Jesus, whenever he was alive, pointed to the Pharisees and said that you lay heavy burdens on people that you're not willing to lift with a finger. That's the type of person that Saul was. He was very devoted to the law. He was very proud of his Israelite heritage. He was very stuck on these are the traditions. These are the things that you're supposed to do. This is the way. So whenever you think about his credentials in that context and some of those Jewish belief systems, then all of a sudden you start to see a very zealous person. Because in Galatians chapter 1, he said, you've heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church and wasted it. And profited the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. So you pair the superiority complex. You pair the hatred of Jesus. You pair all of his credentials and his boasting in the flesh with this type of zeal. And he said, and what that led me to is persecuting the church. And wasting it. Why? Because I was more exceedingly zealous than anybody else at the time. He said that he profited in the Jewish religion above many of his peers. This is the type of man that Saul was. And what it did is it led him to do exactly that. And we see examples of this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, it says that Saul, and this is Saul of Tarsus, this is the one that we're talking about, consented to his death. That his is a man named Stephen. And if you go back to Acts chapter 7, what you'll see is a man named Stephen who is a devout preacher of Jesus. And as he is preaching Jesus with his last words, he's being stoned to death by the Jewish people. And we're introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 where it says that he was holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. And then Acts chapter 8 starts with, and Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution on the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. As for Saul, he made havoc on the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. If you look through the historical narrative of the book of Acts, you see exactly what's being talked about here. You see an extreme amount of persecution on the Jewish church so that all of those disciples, those members of the the church there in Jerusalem, to get away from that persecution, they fled. And they went all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And I, I want to be very clear about this. Saul was not just holding the coats of these persecutors at this point. He was leading the charge. It says that he made havoc 
on the church and that he was going into people's houses and he was pulling them out and he was torturing them and compelling them to blaspheme and turn against Jesus. Otherwise, they were going to die or they were going to be thrown in prison. This is the type of man that Saul was and he was responsible for the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, excuse me, Later on, telling his story, he says, I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even into strange cities, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. I want to pick out a couple of things from this passage. Number one, whenever he talks about compelling people to blaspheme, I want to make sure we've got our minds wrapped around that concept there because it... That doesn't mean that he, he went in their homes and he sat down and he had a cup of coffee with them and said, you know, I really think you need to reconsider your life here. I really think that, that you need to think about your belief in Jesus and what this is doing to the Jewish religion. That's not what he did. He pulled people out of their homes and he beat them and he tortured them. And he consented to their death. He killed fathers. He put mothers in prison and he left children abandoned. That's what he did as he wreaked havoc on the church. And whenever those disciples fled from Jerusalem, that wasn't good enough for him. You know, there are many people whenever they're in opposition to something and it leaves the immediate vicinity, they're fine with that. You know, that that turns into someone else's problem. That wasn't Paul's thought process on this. His thought process was, we've got them running, now let's go stomp it out. Let's get rid of these Christians for good. And so he goes to the chief priests and he asks for permission to continue his work of havoc on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 9. A very interesting historical narrative which will not be on the screen. I would rather, in in fact, you know, we've got technology where we've got Bibles on our phones. There may or may not be any in the pews. I can't really see Grab your cell phone, grab your hard copy, and we're going to read through this narrative together in Acts chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, it says that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that he found anywhere of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we see this context picking up from what we've been talking about here. In verse 3, he says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So as Saul was leaving Jerusalem, heading down that road to Damascus to do exactly what he planned to do, to continue persecuting Christians, He has a very interesting encounter with God. And I want you to put yourself in the position of Saul here. 
All the things that we've talked about in terms of the zeal, in terms of the belief system, you are going to Damascus in your mind on a mission from God. And as you're on that path, a great light shines about you and the only logical and reasonable response is for you to drop down to your knees and bow. But then a voice asks you a question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I want you to pay attention to what he says here. He says, who are you, Lord? Oh, he is stunned. He is amazed. He is bowing down on his face. And all he can ask is, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one who you've been persecuting. And he uses a phrase there. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. If you're familiar with the King James Version, he says it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. If you're unfamiliar with that, what that verbiage means, a goad or a prick was a stick with some spikes on the end. And farmers would use that to poke oxen to rouse them to action and to get them to go. And every now and then you'd come across a very rebellious ox. And that ox would kick back against that spike. And what that would end up doing is hurt the ox. And so what Jesus is asking Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? Because what you're really doing is you're hurting yourself. Because you're working against me as the authority of God. I want you to think about that and let that resonate for a second. This would send Saul into an existential crisis. Because the things that he's been doing over the last few years, he now recognizes that as he thought he was on a mission from God, what he was really doing was hurting himself and sinning against God by persecuting his people. And he's left stunned and amazed. And the only thing he can muster up is, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? And Jesus tells him, I want you to get up and I want you to continue on to, into Damascus and I want you to sit and wait. And someone is going to come tell you exactly what you need to do. Now, something that is very interesting to me about this narrative, and I think it's worth pointing out, is that there were people there with Saul who saw this and who heard this. We see that in verse 7. And the reason I want to point this out is because of the way that the human mind works. You know, if you experience something like this, it would be really easy if you were by yourself to continue on that road to Damascus and think, did that really happen? You know, maybe, maybe I was just really dehydrated and I passed out a little bit and I hit my head on a rock and I think I'm crazy, but I'm just going to continue on into Damascus. That justification process that we run through is real. But the fact that there were people who saw that light, who heard that voice, but saw no man, and they experienced that with Saul, he's able to continue on into Damascus, and he can talk to somebody and say, did that really happen? Yes, Saul, that really happened. You're not crazy. You weren't dehydrated. You didn't pass out and hit your head. This really happened. Jesus spoke to you and told you what you've been doing is wrong. Think about how 
crazy that would be to see from the outsider point of view. Because you're accompanying Saul to go help with that persecution. So Saul's probably not the only one in this existential crisis. But as we continue on in the narrative, in verse 8, it says, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You know, after Jesus gave Saul the instructions to get up and go into Damascus and wait, what the narrative tells us is that he didn't have any sight. He was blind. And I want you to think about this for a second because I don't know if you've ever been given news that is just completely life-altering, that sends you into this major anxiety mode that you're rethinking everything that you've ever done. You know, Hannah and I were on a trip one time, and I was given some very disturbing news. And Hannah offered to drive for me, and what I did on that trip is I looked out the window, and I saw the creeks, I saw the rivers, I saw the hills, I saw the beautiful meadows, and you know what? That took my mind off of it a little bit. Getting to enjoy the beauty of God's creation took my mind off of that distress temporarily. Saul didn't have that luxury. He couldn't pay attention to this stream that he had never seen before and say, man, that's beautiful. I serve an awesome God. What he was left with, in my belief, is mental images. You know, whenever you close your, not, your mind or your eyes at night and all you can see in your mind are replaying scenes of the day, I think he was replaying scenes in his mind. Maybe he hears the voice and he sees the picture of that man that he beat to death because he wouldn't turn against Jesus. And then he turns and he can remember vividly the wife and the mother screaming for mercy as he has his men haul her off to prison and leaving kids behind crying their eyes out because their dad just got killed and their mom's going to prison all because they're Christians. And you're recognizing that those scenes that you thought you were working for God, what you were really doing was persecuting God's people. It tells us that he didn't eat or drink for three days. Why do you think that is? My personal belief is he couldn't stomach it. I think that the mental images that were going through his head made him so sick that he just couldn't stomach it. But he gets up. He continues on to Damascus. And he does exactly what Jesus told him to do. He sits and he waits. And he doesn't eat or drink for three days, but rather he's sitting there in prayer in the temple. And that's where we see a man named Ananias come into the picture. Ananias, it tells us, is a man who was a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. So what we see is he knew the law. He was a Jewish person. 
But we also see in another part of the narrative that he was a disciple who lived at Damascus. And the Lord came to him in a vision. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. Now I want you to think about this from the perspective of Ananias just for a second. Ananias is the picture of a person who Saul was coming after. He was a Jew. He knew the law. And yet he had become a Christian anyways. This is exactly who Saul was after. And yet Jesus comes to Ananias. And if you go throughout the narrative, he tells Ananias, I want you to go and see Saul. He is waiting for you at the temple. You need to go find him and you need to go tell him exactly what he needs to do. And Ananias says, I know about this man. His reputation precedes him. How scared do you think Ananias was at that point? You are the exact target person that he's looking for. And now your Lord just said, go find him. Go talk to him. He cites that he knows that that Saul is coming with permission from the chief priests to persecute. He says, go. And Ananias does that. He goes and he talks to Saul. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, I skipped a passage. We're not going to be there yet. I apologize. What we see is that Saul... immediately is responsive to Ananias' message. He says in verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales that he had received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So Ananias finds Saul doing exactly what Jesus told him he was going to be. He's going to be in the temple. He's going to be praying. And you have a message to deliver to him. And the reason I want this message delivered to him is because he's a chosen vessel. He is going to go preach the gospel to kings, to Gentiles, to Jewish people. He is going to be foundational in the spreading of the gospel. And Ananias does that. And what we see is that Ananias immediately responds. Saul immediately responds. And he's baptized. And then he gets up and he gets to work. And what we see from there is a legacy of a man preaching the gospel. And that's where Acts chapter 9 and verse 20 comes in. That's the one that we had up all ago. It says, according to the glorious... There we go. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the man who destroyed those who called on the name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus 
proving that this Jesus was the Christ. I want you to, again, think about this situation with me. You've got this man who's coming to Damascus with permission to persecute Christians, but when he gets there, all he does is sit in the temple. He has an interaction with a man named Ananias. He now is a believer in Jesus, and what he's doing is he's immediately preaching that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and the people who hear Him are saying, what in the world has happened? This man was supposed to be the persecutor. This was the man who was coming to persecute these Christians, but now what he's doing is he's proving to people that Jesus is the Christ. You know, that is a powerful conversion. Because what we see is that Saul had the same type of zeal that he had for the Jewish belief system as he did for Christ. And he does such immediate turnaround that it confuses people. It leaves them with lip, whiplash a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You, know, you want to talk about someone who has mistakes and regrets in their life? It's Saul. And later on, very many years removed from this conversion story, he's writing this letter, and he says, you know who I was. I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was injurious. And if you go in and you look at the word injurious there, what that means is someone who is puffed up with pride and goes and injures other people for really no good reason. That's what somebody who's injurious is. And he says, those are the things that I did. And you know that he regretted the things that he did. You know. But this is something that he did, and it's something that's very powerful. When he talked about his conversion, whenever he talked about his history of who he was as a Christian, he wasn't belabored with this extreme amount of grief that was handicapping, but rather he brought it back to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And he says, he's the one who's enabled me to preach the kingdom. He's the one who's enabled me to preach the gospel. And I thank him all the time for that ability because he didn't have to choose me to do that. He says that this is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptation. You need to believe this. And what we see of Paul is him going and preaching this gospel because he had gotten to personally experience the conversion benefits. He had personally got to receive the joy of that salvation. He wanted to convince other people to do the same. And it's just a very powerful story to see someone who was so devoted to the Jewish belief system and now so devoted to spreading that glorious gospel. Now... There are some things that I believe are, are very prevalent in this that we can learn from. There are some lessons that I believe are very applicable today. And I'd like to, to think about some of these things. First of those is that zeal without knowledge is worthless. I believe that this point resonates throughout the entire story of Saul. And as we go back to Philippians chapter 3, where he talked about his credentials as a Jew, he says, if anyone else thinks that they have a reason to boast in the flesh, I have more. 
And he says, you know, circumcise the eighth day. Hebrew of Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee. I want to continue on in verse 6. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. As touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted for loss. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. I want you to think about who he was and what he had to lose. He profited greatly above his peers in the Jewish religion. And as he is rethinking about his life, he says all of these different things about his Jewish credentials. He says, you know, with my zeal, it led me to persecute the churches. Touching the law, I did everything that I did, including persecuting Christians. Blameless. But it's because I did it ignorantly. No one can argue that Paul had zeal. He did. But what was missing was knowledge. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as he's retelling his story, he points to this day that he learned about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he said, I'd do it all over again. I'd give, I'd give up everything all over again for Christ. That's how important it was for him to pair the zeal that he had with the knowledge that he had. And later on in Romans Chapter 10, in verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. He again, he says, the Jewish people, they have zeal. He said, I can testify that. You know, whenever I read this passage, I can't help but think, this is personal for him because this was him. This was his life. He had a zeal, but he recognized that it was not accompanied by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he says, my prayer for Israel is that they would have what happened to them just like what happened to me. That they would be able to take that zeal and pair it with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because otherwise what you're doing is you're going about trying to establish your own righteousness and it's worthless. What you do is you find yourself kicking against the pricks. And so as we allow this idea of zeal without knowledge to resonate, I believe it's something that's very applicable for us today. I know a lot of very good people who are zealous for serving God. But they have not paired that with knowledge. And they go around and they do a lot of good things for a lot of people. But they also kick against the pricks. And Saul's desire and prayer for people like that is that they might accompany the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ with their zeal. So that they're not trying to establish their own righteousness, but rather submitting to the righteousness of God. Now, another important lesson in this that I believe we see is we see very clearly God's plan of salvation. And the clear message is this. You can only be saved through Jesus Christ. He says, according to the law, I was blameless. But what did it lead him to do? And I want you to think about the experience that Saul went through. He killed Christians. 
He imprisoned them. He separated families. He did a lot of things that we would say are extremely bad. And yet, we call to mind Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come to God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for him. Saul got to experience this passage. And all of those things that he did in opposition to Christ were wiped clean because Jesus can save to the uttermost. Now, I don't know some of you. I know some of you. I don't think any of you have killed Christians. Now, you may have lied. You may have cheated. You may be addicted to pornography or have been addicted to pornography. You may have cheated on your spouse. Jesus can save to the uttermost. And as that light shines on us, we are faced with the sin that we've committed. And we can trust that Jesus can save to the uttermost. And we can come to God through Him. And so how do we do that? Well, we see that in this particular passage. I want to very explicitly remind you what he did. He believed that Jesus was the Christ. That was completely foundational. He had to change his belief system. Because previously he saw Jesus as a false prophet, as a heretic, as someone who deserved to die, and all of his followers deserved to die. But what Jesus said in Matthew, or in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not will be condemned. You see, Saul had to change his belief system in order to be saved by Jesus Christ. We see that. When that that light shined about him, and he said, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you've been persecuting. He says, Lord, what would you have me to do? He immediately recognized that Jesus was the Christ. We also see that he confessed that belief. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32 that whoever confesses Jesus before men, he also will confess before his Father in heaven. This is another powerful point about somebody being there on the road to Damascus. It wasn't just a good reminder of and, and a, a provision to keep Saul from going through this weird justification process. Someone was able to witness him refer to Jesus as Lord. We know that he had a sorrowful heart and that he had to change his ways. Jesus preached in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, that unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He was speaking to Jews there. And this message could resonate with Saul. He knew that he had to change his ways. He could not continue persecuting Christians and killing them and putting them in prison and still be a follower of Jesus. That was not going to work. He had to make a change. He had to turn. And the same message is true for us today. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, it says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the time of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. Again, I don't know what you've done, but I know I've sinned, and I'm thankful that Jesus can save to the uttermost. Jesus can save you from your sins as well, and it requires this change, this repentance. 
And he was baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Something that's very interesting to note in this process. Despite his belief in Jesus, he still had his sins. Despite his confession that Jesus was Lord, he still had his sins. Despite his obvious period of repentance where he spent three days not being able to eat or drink and he was blind and he was found in the temple praying to God, he still had his sins. And the reason we know he still had his sins is because of Saul's interaction with Ananias. As Paul retold the story whenever he had that encounter with Ananias, this is what he said. He said, Ananias came to him and he asked him, what are you waiting on? Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Ananias, being led by God, would not have told Saul to wash away his sins if he had gotten rid of them when he believed, when he confessed, when he repented, when he was sat in that temple and was praying to God. Because I don't believe that prayer was a simple prayer of God, thank you for my food. He hadn't eaten. It wasn't, thank you for my safe travels from Jerusalem to Damascus. I'm sure that that prayer was a prayer of repentance and saying, God, help me. But he still had his sins. Otherwise, Ananias wouldn't have asked him, what are you waiting on? Get up, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And that term, calling on the name of the Lord, means that he is submitting to God's authority to do a work in him that only he can do. And in baptism, he is submitting to God to wash away those sins. You may have had religious encounters before. Maybe you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you've made that confession before men. Maybe you have have prayed that God would help you change. And all of those steps are very important. But if you haven't been baptized, then you sit in the same situation as Saul in his first encounter with Ananias. But if you submit to the authority of God, He can wash away those sins and He can save you to the uttermost. And the last point that I would like to communicate here is just this idea that God has a remarkable ability to take people who are evil, who have persecuted, who have sinned, who most anybody else would count as dirty and filthy, and clean them up and use them for his glory. Again, I want you to think about Saul's past and all the things that he did. Jesus was able to save him to the uttermost. And now I want you to think about your past. And I want you to know that Jesus can save you to the uttermost. I want you to consider what Paul's future looked like. From this point, he was able to go and preach throughout all of Asia Minor. He was able to go to places like Rome and extend the borders of the kingdom because God used him as a chosen vessel to preach this glorious gospel so that people could know that they could be saved by Jesus Christ. 
God can use you too. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not a bad thing for you to be addicted to pornography. It is. It is sinful. But God can change you. And he can use your story to help others submit to Jesus Christ. That's powerful. And I want you to think about this idea in one other context before we wrap up. Saul's future includes a prize, an inheritance that he would not have gotten otherwise because he submitted to Jesus Christ. And as you think about the future that God can provide for you, not just as a worker in his kingdom, preaching that glorious gospel, but an inheritance, an eternity that you get to spend with God the God that loved you so much to give part of himself to save you from your sins. If you haven't submitted to Jesus, you don't have that future. But I would encourage you to submit to Jesus and let him save you to the uttermost. I appreciate your attention this morning. I know that I went long. I have a habit of doing that. This afternoon is not going to be that bad. But I plead with you. Take stake in your life. Think about where you've been and where you could be if you submitted to Jesus. Your story could be just as powerful as Saul's. If there's anyone that we can assist, the elders will be able to assist you as you stand and sing the invitation song.